Hey, Virginia, great to see you. And uh, um, thanks for taking time. I wanted to, for us to have a chance just to talk about the podcast and to talk about where do we go from here? What We're in a new year. It's 2021. We have the Biden-Harris administration. And I wanted to get your thoughts on, is everything fixed? And are we, uh, are we able to kind of... Uh, look the other way or do we need to continue to stay engaged and involved? Thanks, Mike. It's good to see you too. And the answer to do we need to stay engaged is an easy one to answer, which is yes, we absolutely do. The new year and the new administration brings us some cautious optimism. And as you know, I'm an immigration advocate, but more specifically, I'm a deportation defense lawyer. So immigration is big. (laughs) It's a big subject with many, many different parts to it. And the area that I work on is relatively small, discrete, uh, (laughs) D-I-S-C-R-E-T-E, not that discrete. And um, so there's lots of different changes that affect many people in many ways, possibly coming. Some have already started, but much remains to be seen. And I guess I would say in terms of what remains to be seen is the new administration has two adversaries, um, at least two adversaries. One is a lot of people who still don't like or hate or are have questions about immigrants, including asylum seekers. There's still a lot of opposition to providing human rights to all migrants, asylum seekers, refugees, and immigrants. And there's a lot of feeling that some immigrants are more worthy than others, and that depends on who you're talking to. So the changes, whatever changes come, will not affect everybody equally. But the other adversary, which is obvious, is COVID. So a lot of things that Um, were bad before, are still bad, or getting worse because of COVID. And the new administration has to deal with both of these adversaries or large groups or two phenomena of adversaries at once. And it's no secret that the new president has um, both said that there's some things that he wants to change, that he wants to change very much from the previous administration and head in a totally different direction. And he wants to see if he can try to unify the country. And to some extent, those things, those two goals are in harmony, right? Because one of the things that we've seen is increased division over the last several years. But there's also a a way in which those two goals are in conflict. Um, in the sense that the more rapidly the administration moves, the more possible it is to um, get a reaction from those people who liked what the previous president was doing. And so unify and make changes, there's some tension there. and, And we saw that already. We've seen that already. There are a lot of political issues going on related to all of this, it sounds like. A lot of political issues, and I'll give you one example, um, and it's one that's 
very close to my heart as a deportation defense or removal defense lawyer. On his very first day in office, the new president announced a 100-day pause or moratorium on deportations. Not all deportations, but on a lot of deportations. There was still going to be an ability to deport people who there was reason to believe were terrorists or spies or somehow dangerous to the United States. But he did want to issue a moratorium on deportations and sort of look at all of the enforcement actions and how they were working, have, you know, just step back and have officials look at it and look and think about it and see how it was working. And um, immediately, so that was on a Wednesday, by Tuesday, the state of Texas, um, through our governor, Abbott, had filed a lawsuit against the United States, trying to, seeking to um, halt the pause in other words, to uh, allow deportations to go forward. Um, and that was on Friday, the 22nd, um, that the Texas filed that lawsuit. And on Sunday, um, several uh, people sought to intervene in the lawsuit. Two organizations in particular, RAICES, which um, was born and grew up in San Antonio, although it has offices in many other places now as well, and a Houston-based organization called FIEL, Familias Inmigrantes, you see, um, uh, um, para educación y lucha, or something like that. FIEL means loyalty, raíces means roots. So those two organizations represented by the ACLU, um, filed a motion to intervene in that lawsuit saying we have a stake in this uh, as they repre represent um, literally in some cases legally, but also in terms of their membership, many people who might be subject to deportation, many, many immigrant families. And by Monday or Tuesday, was it? By Tuesday, the um, a federal district court in Texas, in the Southern District of Texas, specifically Victoria, had granted the state of Texas its temporary restraining order, meaning that the administration cannot pause deportations during this next 100 days. There will be a more, um, not a complete hearing, not a, not a full-blown hearing on the merits of this lawsuit, but um, we will know more, you know, in the coming weeks about whether or not there will be a temporary injunction about this or not. And, you know, the whole thing will have to play out in the federal courts. But as of right now, for instance, a young man who had DACA and who had been afraid during the last four years to renew his DACA because he was afraid that the administration would use the information, all the personal information he submitted to deport him, failed to, failed to renew his DACA. And so then he was caught for jaywalking. And it turned out that, oh, he didn't have DACA anymore because he had failed to renew it. And he was scheduled for deportation and was going to be deported right before the inauguration, on the very day of the inauguration, the new president announced this pause. And now 
a federal court in Texas has undone the pause. So for instance, this young man who has, um, you know, who was a DACA recipient, who has, is not a terrorist or a spy or a danger to the United States, is vulnerable to deportation once again. In custody right now or just? Uh, you know, uh, I assume, yeah, he's in custody because, okay. yes. For jaywalking. There was something a uh, little, some, 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 there was some little uh, spot in the news which left a blank, and I don't know the answer to it. it said later yeah. charges, later other charges were added. So I can't mm-hmm. say for sure that it was right. only jaywalking, but we do know that the, administra- the administration or ICE would absolutely say if this is a terrorist, because that was a person who would have been accepted from the from the pause anyway, if he was actually a dangerous person. Right. So um, as we, you know, just as we talk about this, I'm just reminded of some of the conversations we had when we first started the podcast in 2020. And, you know, what you said during our initial conversation that basically what was happening under the prior administration what we were seeing was that immigrants were being denied their legal rights and their human rights. And that that was a threat not only to to immigrants, but to our larger democracy. And then we've had conversations, you've had conversations with some wonderful advocates and people who are, who are active. Um, our recent conversation with Eddie Canales in which he um, talks about the failure to provide uh, even um, legally mandated DNA, uh, taking DNA samples of people who've died as the trying to immigrate into this country. Um, And then some of our, our other people too, like Yael Shakur, um, and uh, just all, all the folks that you've spoken with, they've each talked about the ways in which um, our democracy is being undermined as the former administration was refusing to, uh, to basically follow the law. Um, and so I just wanted to kind of get your, your take on that. And then, you know, where do we go from here? Great question, Mike. Uh, the answer is, well, one of part of the answer is, we don't know how this is going to play out. We do know that immigrants, particularly certain kinds of immigrants, remain a very unpopular group among many people in the United States, including many elected officials and many public servants in the United States. And so, just like, I mean, we can look through history at people who were not regarded as fully human. And that regard didn't have to be by the entire country or the entire populace. But if there was enough disregard for people as human beings, they could be used as guinea pigs and have been used as guinea pigs throughout US history for lots of bad things. That is um, and the bad things have been perpetrated, perpetrated sometimes by government and sometimes by other um, parts of society, other institutions. So we look at um, 
the men who were subjected to syphilis experiments um, in the earlier part of the 20th century, um, where black men, not regarded as fully human um, by medical people, by scientists and people who are sworn to do no harm, people who are supposed to be caring for the health of their, our fellow human beings, allowed men who had syphilis to go untreated as guinea pigs to see what would happen if syphilis was untreated with terrible results. So that has happened um, among a profession that we all should be able to trust and you know, had a duty to protect those people under their care, not treat them as, not treat them as guinea pigs. Um, and in the same way, or a, sim- a parallel way, let's say, the United States government has treated immigrants um, at, as guinea pigs for certain kinds of policies. For instance, using, trying to uh, get local and state law enforcement officials to enforce federal law, right? Which um, happened, um, and, and this did not happen with the most recent administration. This happened before. So 287 agreements that local law enforcement would report anybody that they picked up to the Department of Homeland Security and specifically ICE to see if they were um, in the United States legally and then to, if they weren't, to uh, transfer them uh, to ICE custody and ICE detention. And so in that way, a lot of people who may have been picked up for and charged with crimes that it later turned out that they did not commit, right, get deported, um, even though they might have been living in the United States peacefully for many years. And that's uh, an experiment of just you know, making all law enforcement, federal law enforcement, even though local police, sheriff's departments, um, departments of public safety are not familiar with, are not expert in, in federal law and commissioned, deputized to do things that they're not supposed to be doing, they're not trained to be doing, and they shouldn't be doing. That's an example of something, though it began with immigrants, threatens us all. Right. Um, And so the issue is not that local departments, local law enforcement should never participate with um, the federal government. But we were, you know, one of the reasons we're 50 states and one of the reasons why we supposedly have checks and balances is so that we don't have some super duper uh, law enforcement all across the country that can enforce everything. (laughs) all the time. We saw that also uh, when, and this was not against immigrants, but against protesters, when uh, when border patrol agents, Department of Homeland Security employees were sent to Seattle to quote unquote quell protests, right? Um, that's also an improper use of federal law enforcement agents way outside of their jurisdiction Um, being sent to deal with a local problem. On the other hand, we have the opposite, right? January 6th, a direct threat on the U.S. Capitol, a direct threat on democracy and passivity from 
too many law enforcement agencies. I certainly don't mean to minimize the efforts of those who um, fought, who used creativity and courage to defend the Capitol and to defend the process, but <laughs> we were all surprised at how, how passive um, the full force of the US government was in defending democracy. The images on TV, you know, were stunning. Terrifying. Um, so, you know, on this topic, though, it's also the, just the irony that, you know, immigrants, many come to this country and are welcome into the labor pool, uh, providing certain kinds of labor in certain uh, industries um, or in agriculture. And, um, but then when it becomes politically expedient, they are then uh, demonized. Is that correct? Absolutely. Immigration policy has always been a very complicated mix of a number of factors. One factor, as you mentioned, is the needs of economic interests that are the most powerful at the time. So sometimes that's growers, you know, not the small farmer, but the large growing country. Uh, companies who want to import and employ and use uh, um, immigrant labor, um, but not uh, while at the same time not giving them full rights, not paying them, um, you know, properly, not giving them the kinds of health care benefits. Immigrants were excluded. Um, farm workers were excluded, as were domestic workers, from even um, FDR's labor reforms. So we like to think of FDR as a liberal president who extended um, lots of rights to workers, and he did in certain ways, but it's no accident who was left out. Farm workers and domestic workers were left out of the protections for workers' compensation, unemployment compensation, um, certain kinds of health and safety rules. And who were those people? They were people of color. They were Filipinos. They were Mexicanos. They were African-Americans. They were black domestic servants or farm workers. So again, the margins, the people at the margins, the people who have been oppressed, the people who are not seen fully as human beings have been the ones who have been left out. And the Bracero program of the 1940s is a really good example of that. Bracero, a brazo is an arm, right? So we wanted more field hands, right? And that's how people were seen as hands to do labor, not as full human beings with brains and hearts and families and childrens and, you know, uh, histories and memories and desires and talents, right? They were seen as hands. Braceros, just um, more than their manos, their whole hands and their backs went into that backbreaking labor, but not seen as full human beings. And that is a theme throughout U.S. history. So, yes, uh, the economic desires of the most powerful interests is always a factor. Um, foreign policy is always a factor. It's not supposed to be. But it is, in terms of if you look at who gets asylum, it is still a lot easier. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's, it's more likely that a Cuban or Venezuelan will 
um, be able to uh, achieve asylum through the immigration courts than it will be for a Salvadoran or a Mexican or a Guatemalan or a Honduran. A foreign policy, um, racism has always been, you know, and this plays into everything else too, but even all things being equal in terms of, uh, and, and it never is, but assuming all things are being equal, racism has always been part of immigration policy from the Chinese exclusion acts in the 1800s to then and Chinese not being considered white, and then later Chinese being welcomed, but Japanese people, you know, being uh, herded up into concentration camps or um, during World War II, not because of anything any of them had in individually done, but because of their heritage. We didn't do that with German heritage people, even though they were also um, our enemies in World War II. And then a final strain that is there, that exists, and that has existed for some time are the humanitarian concerns. Asylum and refuge being one of the values that is in the law, but that is more respected at some times than at others. And 1980 was the codification of a lot of those principles in the 1980 Refugee uh, and Asylum Act. And it just breaks your heart that last year, the 40th anniversary of that law, which should have been a time of celebration and reassessment and what can we do better, was a year in which the previous administration, the immediate previous administration, very nearly did away with asylum completely. That's incredible. Yeah. You know, so uh, as we kind of move forward with the podcast, um, I guess I just wanted to take a moment to invite people to contact us probably through Facebook is the best way to do that at this point. Um, but let us know what you think of the podcast. We want to encourage people to continue to listen and to share. And we do want to grow the uh, our listenership and we want feedback in that process. And I wanted to just, um, any thoughts you're having at this time about, you know, what, uh, where we're going to take the podcast this next year. Uh, I know we have a, an episode we're working on getting, getting produced shortly. Um, but, uh, what are you, what are you hoping, um, to, to do as we have these ongoing conversations in future episodes? So uh, I'd love also to hear from people and just Facebook, um, the Facebook page is uh, first they came for the immigrants <laughs> for our podcast. There are other um, things called first they came for the immigrants, um, other podcasts or episodes of podcasts with that name, but go to the Facebook and look for us and look for Virginia Raymond and Mike Hurwitz and Avi Hurwitz. And um, that will also be a way to track us back but um so there's so much to do there's so much to do one thing is we have to see what is happening with some of the most horrifying things that happened in the last um four years and i think for many people the most horrifying of all was the so-called family separations that took place mostly in 2018 
with zero tolerance, but also took place some before and some after. And there are, it's very hard to calculate this, but something over 600 children who are still um, away from their parents and their parents, we don't know where they are. So um, I think that it's promising that there's supposed to be a new task force focused entirely on getting these children back to their parents. That trauma is not going to end, but at least getting them um, back together to the, that's a priority. And what's going to happen with that? Um, A lot of other bad things that happen, like the so-called migrant protection protocols or remain in Mexico, that has been a disaster that affected thousands and thousands of people. And it is not clear that that is not going to be easy for the new administration to undo. It's, (laughs) let's just leave it at that. I, I feel hopeful about some of the new appointments that the new president has announced that he's trying to make both in Homeland Security and the Department of Justice. We'll see if those appointments go through. I feel very hopeful about the people that he's appointing. But, um, my first year, while well, I took an immigration law class with um, in law school, and the very first thing that our professor said is people seem to think immigration law is about helping people come to the United States. It's not. <laughs> the basic purpose of immigration law is keeping people out. And so, you know, there's a lot about the immigration system that is designed to harm Um, you know, President Biden took a small but important symbolic step when he followed the example of Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who wrote a decision in June of 2018 that for the first time said, I'm going to use the term non-citizen rather than the term alien. Um, And um, President Biden followed her, her lead in the bill that he sent to Congress. That's another thing we'll have to do. We'll have to very follow very closely the bill that he sent to Congress. You know, there's a long way between sending a bill to Congress and getting it passed. And there's lots of parts of it, some of which I already don't like. <laughs> but, um, you know, we'll have to see how it plays out. So there's a lot, a lot to, um, to pay attention to. And so I think, you know, it sounds like our role, your role will be to kind of continue to provide some thoughts, uh, interviews with people um, and, uh, you know, analysis for people like me who aren't experts by any means, but who are interested, care about our democracy, care about the plight of immigrants um, and and, want to uh, get involved and, and be active and know how to, uh, how to support, um, uh, justice, um, the pursuit of justice. That's right. That's right. This podcast is for English speaking people who are not experts on immigration or immigration law, whether from their own personal experience, immigrating or family members, immigrating, recently or trying to immigrate recently or by being advocates and therefore like thoroughly immersed in the details. It's for people who 
have lives and interests and professions and, you know, families that are not directly involved, but who care, <laughs> who care, who um, subscribe to um, a rule that is in various languages applies in many of the world's religions. Do not do unto other people what you would not want them to do to you, or sometimes called the golden rule. Uh, versions of it exist in many ethical and religious systems. And so if that's you in that category, then this podcast is for you. And I hope you'll write to Mike and me and tell us how to make it more useful for you, how to make it better. So I want to thank you so much for everything you've done to uh, really produce some um, really compelling, interesting interviews with, with uh, people who are doing just amazing work in this area. And uh, it's been very enlightening for me and hopefully for, for many others. And we will just continue to, uh, to develop that, uh, develop those, this podcast. And um, we look forward to uh, connecting down the road. Thank you, Virginia. Thank you, Mike, with whom this podcast would never have happened, uh, certainly not have made it this long. Thank you very much. And have a good day, everybody. You've been listening to First They Came for the Immigrants, a new podcast. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to give us a rating and review, which helps people find the podcast. Our audio was produced by Avi Hurwitz, who also performed the music at the introduction to the podcast. Outro music by progressive social justice rock band Swerve Left. Find us on Facebook and be sure to like us and follow us there. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.